Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Wow. We, um, we're in a transitional time as a congregation, as a church, and it's a, it's a vulnerable time, and our, our PNC is hard at work, and uh, they'll be meeting the next couple of Tuesdays, I believe, and, uh, and, and working and hoping to put together and finalize the, our church information form, which is the way we post the position and make it available uh, to the world. And, uh, and I can tell you right now what we need to be doing as a congregation, and you can guess, pray. Pray for the process, pray for the person God who, whom God is calling, uh, and, and jump in and pray. And, and right now, it's a time for us to be a praying congregation. It's always a time to be a praying congregation, but especially now, that's what we need. And pray for the, the, the committee's work, um, and pray for the whole thing. Pray for this church and its witness in this neighborhood through all of us. Uh, and, and I'm excited to see what God's going to do. But with that, it's time to think about prayer. How do we pray? What do we pray about? Uh, what does it look like? And the, and the first place to go is, is to the Psalms, because that is the prayer book in Scripture that's taught believers uh, to pray uh, for thousands of years now. And, and we've, we're, we spent some time in the Psalms and through the Psalms of Ascent uh, last spring and summer, and, and we're going to go back to it for just a short series, uh, five, five weeks, uh, with a break in the middle for Easter uh, and Palm Sunday. But we're going to spend some time again in the Psalms, uh, which takes us into all of Scripture, of course, uh, and, and think about praying and, and what do we do? To, to call out to God with everything we have. So we are going to start this morning with Psalm 73. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it there and listen now to, to the Word of God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long have I been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought 
how to understand this? It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. Guide us now as we think upon it. Guide our hearts, guide my words. Lead us, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we just finished a, a series on some of the intellectual challenges to our faith. And, and honestly, I gotta tell you, the, the greater challenges to our faith are with our hearts, our feelings, our, our emotions. And, and our feelings can and most often do have much more of an impact on our faith than our, our intellect does. Even when we face some of those big challenges of faith that, that we did in the last series, the, the intellectual aspect of those challenges often troubles us less than the emotional aspect of those challenges. And so the question is, what do we do with our feelings? Our, what do we do with our heart? our emotions. Now, there are two general common ways of dealing with our feelings, but I'm going to propose a third. The, the, the common ways, the first and very common in churches, is a kind of a, a religious approach to feelings, and I mean religious in a negative sense here. And this religious approach is, is it's just uncomfortable with feelings, especially, I got to say, us Presbyterians. We're not big on emotion and feelings. And we take Paul's charge very seriously, very literally, to do everything decently and in order, and not let our feelings get in the way. And so we're pretty happy to just set them aside and get the job done. Feelings, they can, they can, they, they can come from a dark recess in our hearts, parts of our hearts that we don't want to expose to the world 
to ourselves and, and certainly not to God for fear of what's in them. And those places can be dark and, and profound and intense and raw and terrifying. And so religious people, we want to gain God's attention through our, our self-control and our virtue. And this depth of feeling is, is easier to, to stuff than it is to let out. And so for much of religion, it's the, it's the practice of controlling our hearts and our feelings. And we, and we can see this even in modern appeals to stoicism. It's kind of a, it's a trend these days. This stuffing of emotion as, is its primary approach. On the other hand, a, a more postmodern Secular approach to feelings is it's almost the opposite. Philosophers call this the age of authenticity because the secular world has placed our feelings above everything else. We've gone from a world of what do you think about to what do you feel about? And we see ourselves as the, the summation of our desires and our feelings. Our, our, our feelings are who we are. That's, that's what it means to be authentic. What do you feel? How do you feel? How do you really feel? And it's not our beliefs or thoughts or our practices. It's what's in your hearts that really matters. And we think of that just in terms of emotions. And so expressing our feelings and, and being true to our feelings becomes the most important thing. No matter what they are, they are a good unto themselves in this postmodern age. And I can almost hear my daughter when she was 14. And I, I, was, I was trying to reason with her about something that she was upset about. And I, I can hear her saying to me, Dad, don't tell me how to feel. The Psalms, they don't do either one of those things. The Psalms present a different way of looking at life and faith and heart and mind than either that kind of religious, stoic view or, or the postmodern view. The feelings in the Psalms are very real. And I've got to say, all of them are represented. The whole breadth of feelings are represented in here in the Psalms, anger and fear, hostility unbridled joy and hope, and there is a rawness to the expression of feelings in the Psalms. They are very present. Clearly, nothing is stifled or, or stuffed, but, in the Psalms, but the Psalms neither suppress or rationalize our feelings or rationalize our feelings. It's not a discussion book about feelings, either trying to control them like a Stoic textbook nor do the Psalms crown feelings as the most important thing. It's not merely venting feelings. The psalmist is neither taking control of feelings or being controlled by feelings. Here's the third thing the psalmist does. He takes the feelings to God and he listens. They simply pray their feelings. They don't just discuss it or deny it. They pray it. 
This series is going to help us learn how to pray by looking at how the psalmist takes our hearts, our whole selves, right to God. Really, both our thoughts and our emotions, our head and our hearts. We take it all to God. And in the coming weeks, we'll be looking at some different feelings and emotions represented in the Psalms. And the first feeling I want to look at this morning is doubt. It makes sense coming off a series of dealing with hard questions of faith. Even, even before having answers to those questions or hope in the answers to the questions, we pray that sinking feeling of insecurity in our faith. We pray our doubt. And this series, again, is loosely based on a Tim Keller series and its structure, and he does three things each week that we'll at least start off doing this week. We'll look at the emotion, the condition, the feeling, and then we're going to look at what that cause is of the feelings, particularly in, in the psalm that we're looking at. But finally, we'll look at what the psalmist, what God does with that emotion, the feeling, the, the condition. So let's start at looking at what the feeling of doubt is in this psalm. Remember, the psalms are songs. They are poetry, and so there's metaphors, there's pictures given to us of what, what's meant in this. When I was in high school in Aspen, Colorado, I had the opportunity in, in the summers to learn some rock climbing and mountain climbing. And the most fundamental skill in, in rock climbing is referenced here in this passage. It's the skill of securing a good foothold. It's where you place your foot so that it will hold your weight. And you, and you get your foot on that spot and you don't move it or even wiggle it while you lift your weight up on it. And some footholds, they're tiny. And, and the fear is always that you're going to slip or that the rock will give way. And that slipping, the, the feet losing their hold on the mountain is what the psalmist is describing in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. The picture is of our foot slipping and us falling off the mountain. That's a powerful poetic picture of being eternally lost. And what he's saying is, I almost lost my faith. I almost fell off the mountain and into the abyss. One of the things I remember them teaching us when we were climbing is while we're working on the footholds and the handholds and the ascent, don't look down. If it's anything more than about five feet, there's a, there's a reaction. And if it's 20 or 30 or 100 or 1,000 feet, we get that rush of fear the, 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 of the what-ifs. And that we can, with that, we experience vertigo and, and dizziness. And it's awfully easy to move our feet on that foothold just a little bit and slip. This is what Tim Keller says about doubt. He says, doubt is a form of spiritual vertigo where your heart spiritually can't process something you see. Doubt is a dizziness 
or vertigo that happens when your eye gives your brain something it can't process. A couple of things to notice about doubt from this psalm. First of all, if the psalmist is expressing such doubt, it's likely something that all of us are likely to experience. Doubt is, honestly, it's part of the experience of faith. When we believe in things, we're, we're going to have experiences. We will see things that will cause us to call into question how we understand the world to work and how we understand who God is and who we are. And we'll see that empty, disorienting space below where we thought uh, our foot safely held. And, they, and it's going to cause us to wonder if this foothold will keep us on the mountain keep us from falling. So don't, don't be shocked when you doubt. But look at what happens when the psalmist expresses his doubts honestly. He grows to an even greater understanding, expression, and, and place of faith. Uh, and we'll look at that in a moment where he gets, where he gets it. But the point is, our faith can grow stronger when we confront our fears, our doubts and questions, and our slippery footholds in life. I, I had some good reactions to the last series of sermons on the hard questions of faith. Looking directly at them can bring us not just answers, but to a place of deeper, greater faith and in a greater sense of our security in Christ. There's a, there's a picture of this at the end of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus calls Philip, and Philip finds Nathanael and tells him about Jesus. And Nathanael's response is doubt. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And now that may seem like plain prejudice, but Nathanael knew the prophecies that said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is nowhere near Nazareth. We know the answers because we have information they didn't have at that moment, and we need to respect the questions and the feelings and the fears and the doubts. But here's what we do. We say to them what Philip said to Nathanael, come and see. Come and see. I may not have all the answers, but let's go to Jesus together. Nathaniel has Jesus just say one little thing revealing to him. And it wasn't even about the original question that had him doubting. It was something much more personal and to the heart. And he goes from this doubt to one of the great expressions of faith in, in Scripture. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. We all experience doubts. Take them to Jesus and grow through them. So, secondly, let's look at the cause of the psalmist's condition, of his doubt. In this case, we see right away what it is in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
And then he goes on about it for a while. I, I thought about skipping that part of the reading, but it's worth seeing how much this affected the psalmist. It really knocked him for a loop, disoriented him. There are many things in the world that create doubts. In this case, it is the experience of an injustice. And we get this in, in our world, too. This is a, a current doubt creator. It's been a big topic of conversation in the past decade, the, the character of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world and, and, and how they gained their power and wealth. And we get, we get the frustration with the prosperity of the wicked. And this elicits a gut response in us, not just of anger, but how could God allow this and be God? And, and so we get what the psalmist is feeling. It's shaking his faith. Here's the things. Doubts are not sourced merely in our thoughts, but in our hearts. He says he felt this feeling when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. I, I'm sure he already knew about injustice, but it's when he experienced it, the questions came. And, and faith and reason are not at odds here. It's what is going on in his heart. And, and the grip on his beliefs is slipping because of what he feels in his heart, his envy and, and anger for the arrogant, wicked, prosperous ones. Keller puts it this way, faith is holding on to what we know to be true in spite of how things appear to your heart. In this case, it appears the wicked win. That's what it feels like, that, that those who don't deserve it have more than those who do. And it's not just when we think of it that we're troubled. It's when we actually experience it that our hearts get disoriented and our footholds begin to slip. There are real questions in the center of our doubts, but they hit us full force when the threat is experienced and real. Those are the moments our attention goes down to the bottom thousands of feet below. And we have that moment of wondering if that little foothold will hold us. And we envision what would happen if it didn't. That's the psalmist's source of doubt. So what's the, the Scripture's response to our doubt? Four things I want to take a, a look at and try to notice here, all in the Scripture, four things. And all four are important to, for, to keep from getting stuck in fear on the mountain or, or slipping and, and falling. First, first thing is doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. If your faith may be wrong, the alternative that we propose may also be wrong. Be honest and investigate not just the things we're doubting, but the alternative faith that we're proposing. Know that the alternative to a faith, to a way of seeing a reality, it's not no faith. There's no such thing. It's another faith, another way of seeing things. The last couple of weeks, I told a story about an atheist friend of Tim Keller's that he wrote about in his great book called Making Sense of God, and Keller writes about how his friend began to, to question his doubts about faith, to doubt his doubts. 
And Keller writes, when I asked how that was happening, he said that a turning point had been a talk he heard me give on doubting your doubts. And he said, I had never realized that there had to be some faith under my doubts. And when I looked at the things I did believe, I discovered that I didn't have good reasons for them. When I started to examine some of the, of the basis for my doubts, faith in God didn't seem so hard. So doubt the doubt. Look inside. There are always motives to our doubt, and some of them are dishonest, and even if it's talking about evil and suffering. And frankly, for me, for me in this picture, to demand that I should be given an understanding of why the wicked appear to prosper while others suffer is, is, is just, frankly, pretty prideful. This is me demanding to understand it before I'd be willing to trust that maybe God is still just. Even if I can't understand why things are happening, do you see the pride? Start with doubting your doubts. Secondly, enter the temple, the sanctuary. The psalmist says in verse 16 that thinking about this was wearisome. Then comes verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. This is what it means. You do not deal with your doubts just by stewing in them, just by figuring them out for yourselves. You didn't get them just by thinking and, and being stuck with them rattling around in your head. It's just, just going to wear you out. The first place to go with them is into the presence of God. What we do on Sundays doesn't just engage our minds. We are whole people. And so we engage everything. And you can see that in the table that's set before us. All the senses and the intellect and the heart and the emotions. We bring it to the table and we have an experience of God with emotions and singing with the, the touch and the taste and the smell of the bread and the cup, with greeting each other and with a smile and a touch. Go into the temple and experience God. You'll never get out of your doubts by just merely trying to figure it out. Even if you're a skeptic, go into the temple and pray and let yourself experience God. Come and see. Next, verse 18, compare the footholds. Who's on more solid ground? For instance, in this case, are we proposing that there is no justice? That the wicked are going to get away with it? That they'll be better off in the end than the victims? That we'd be better off to join them in their immorality and usury that, that benefits them. This is, after all, the logical conclusion of the, the kind of the nihilism or the true secularism and atheism. In the end, there is no morality, and the great, greatest beneficiaries of life are the strongest. And, and we call it survival of the fittest or natural selection. Honestly, is that truly what you believe? Maybe it is for some. 
But when I am honestly evaluating my doubts, I always come back to a stronger position in my original faith, often with a greater and deeper understanding. I don't think that this is all there is. And I believe that morality is real. Who do you, feel, who do you really feel and, and think and believe is better off in the end? The one trusting God or the ones just trusting themselves? The one seeking to be obedient and faithful to God or the one who will do anything to get ahead? Verse 18 suggests that upon further reflection, it's more likely the wicked are going to fall off the mountain in the end than those seeking God. Even if it looks like they're getting the better end of things now, take a look at both sides. What do you really believe? And finally, in verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Feel for his hand. Doubt is when we feel like he's not there, that God's not there. And, and in the case of the psalmist who's filled with envy and doubt, he feels like God's not there in the wicked wind. And he gets embittered and, and brutish and like a beast toward God. He's angry at God. Most doubt in my experience, most doubt that I've seen in others and in myself, most of it is anger at God for not feeling like he's there when I need him. When we see something happening in the world or or to us, he's not there doing what I want him to do or making me feel the way I want to feel. He's not managing the world and and the wicked people the way I want them to be managed. But the thing is, after this anger, uh, I'd be scared for him to show up. He'd have the right to be just as mad at me as I was at him. Worse even, because I should have trusted him. I love Job. He's so honest and eloquent about his anger with God. But when God shows up, it all evaporates. And Job has nothing to say but awe. Let's go back to the climbing metaphor. Most everyone begins learning to climb with the bouldering, which which means climbing just a few feet off the ground so that you, you can learn how to do it without any real risk. But then you hook up to the ropes and, and, and you go on belay. And, and so that when your foot comes off the rock and you begin to fall, the, the rope catches you. And, and you don't go into the abyss. It's as if the gracious hand of God reaches out and holds you so that you don't fall. And the rope holds you in place until you can get your foot back on the rock and, and hopefully in a more secure foothold. And, and you begin to ascend once again. Ultimately, I believe God is there. And no matter how angry or embittered we've gotten, we need not be afraid of meeting him. Nor do we need to worry that when we look for his hand, it won't be there. 
There's an old hymn that has a wonderful line that pictures what's happening. When darkness hides his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. It may seem like it's dark and no one is there, but reach out. Not afraid of what will grab you, but trusting that he is there to take you by the hand. He'll be there. There's only one whose foot slipped and he came off the mountain completely. He's the one who trusted God wholly. And he's the only one that could cry out from the cross that he'd been abandoned by God. And for him it was true. But he was abandoned by God the one time so that we can know that, that when we reach out, even if we've been bitter and angry at God, when we reach out, he will be there with his grace, his forgiveness, and his love. And he catches us when we fall. So we reach out. When your foot feels like it's slipping, or even worse, when it's given way and you are falling, and your doubts overcome you, reach out. Take your doubts to God, and he'll catch you and place your foot on the rock. Let's pray. Lord, we are so much more utterly dependent upon you than we, than we can ever imagine. For each breath, Lord, each beating of our heart, you, you are the creator, the sustainer, and the Lord of all. And Lord, you got us. Even when we don't think that you do and it feels like our feet are about to slip, even worse when they do, you got us. Lord, may we climb with that confidence that we are secure in you. Guide our footholds, guide our steps. Lord, sometimes we need to come off of one foothold. It's not a good one. It's not real. But Lord, guide us by your word, by your spirit. Guide us to know who you are, who we are, and your plan. And Lord, the promise that your, your purpose will be fulfilled in us. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to stand up to all our doubts and come to you with it all. Thank you for your word. Guide us in it now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.